Hey everybody, this is the Ken Hale Show brought to you by Sustaining Purpose and you can find out more about us at sustainingpurpose.com. Stay tuned for another great podcast. It is a pleasure to have on the podcast today, Fred Erickson. Fred, thank you for coming on. I've been looking forward to this conversation with you now for several days. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Ken. Thank you for letting me take part in this podcast. Thank, well, thank you for coming on. I'm excited for it. Yes. I like your title, Sustaining Purpose. And that uh, is a good description of God's intentions toward us. He sustains that purpose by giving us his word. So thank you for letting me share something about the Bible. I've taught Bible for 40 years as a Christian school teacher. Also, I'm an elder at my church and have taught many classes on books of the Bible and survey of biblical topics for adults as well as uh, young people. Mm -hmm. So I'm delighted to have a chance to share about the Bible. Can you just give us, I mean, you were in education for 40 years. Yeah. (laughs) And you are... I'm going to say this, and you might—I don't um, be modest with—but you are a teacher's teacher. Uh, so when you're saying you've taught Bible classes, uh, people might think, "Oh, yeah, a Sunday school class with a Sunday school teacher that shows up and kind of ruffles the papers around." And no, you are a um, really very scholarly in your preparation and in your thinking. Um, so. I feel drawn actually to be not just a teacher but a student. Yeah, I'm—I've told that to my students in the past. I'm a fellow student with you. And uh, I like to delve deeply into biblical topics and into the Bible itself. And I, and I prefer to generate my own curriculum based on things that the Lord shows me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I take that seriously. Yeah. I think uh, I've become part of a, since becoming a Christian, I became part of a tradition that focuses on Sola Scriptura, only the scriptures as right. our authority. Yeah. And uh, teachers and preachers need to rightly divide the word of truth. Right. And, and making your own curriculum is in itself very challenging because it requires a lot of research, a lot of digging, and you're a learner and a yeah. teacher, and, a, and it's required of a teacher. I have to do it that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> Anything yeah. else is kind of canned. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Depends on the approach taken by whoever wrote the curricula. Yeah, and and I know my youngest son, uh, whom you're familiar with, was in your class, and I know that he was very taken with you and some of the other uh, men teachers in the school. We're talking up from about uh, up through the eighth grade before he went into high school. But his reference to you was a real Renaissance man because you know so many things. You have so many skills and interests in different areas of life that. Um, Oh, just fascinating. It's interesting that somebody actually has those interests. Can you just talk a little bit about some of your hobbies, some of the things you enjoy and enjoy doing? Well, I, I love history. I, I uh, did a master's in history, and I, work, I read history books even now all the time. Uh, so I love reading. I, I, like, I play chess. I'm an archer. <laughs> I pursue longbow, traditional English longbow archery. Um, I'm a bird watcher. All my students know that, that I'm, I uh, like to go out in the fields and look at birds and travel around the country. Yeah. Because uh, I'm enjoying God's creation, which right. I'd like to share later is, is actually God speaking to us. Right. It's, it's his word as well. Yeah. Uh, it, I don't know if I'll get to the point where I've been listening to and 
getting acquainted with Thomas Aquinas. Yes. And uh, his use of the word uh, nature or the laws of nature. I don't know if he coined that term, but uh, tell me you get to John Locke. I, this is off topic. I'm just going to yes. spend here for a moment. <laughs> but not, we're not getting into politics. Sustaining purpose is not about politics. But we can't ignore the influence of theology on politics, especially when in the uh, 15, 16, and early 1700s. And now, well, the, the church in the day of Thomas Aquinas, the church was paramount in, in the political world of yeah. medieval Europe. And we tend to use the word nature to help explain the, the way uh, his, his scholastic views work. So right. with, with Aquinas, we're talking about scholasticism. Yeah. Well, since we're, we're there, go ahead and give us a little, just a brief, people are going to hear this term. We're not talking about a school lesson, you know, scholastic, but uh, what is that scholasticism as a philosophy or way of thinking? Well, as a philosophy, scholasticism would affirm that there's a natural world which humans can discern and discover things about. And it's it's kind of... Francis Schaeffer does a really good discussion of this whole tension between what, what he calls nature and grace. Grace being uh, God speaking to us through his word. and There the authority is the church, but in nature we look to humans like mm-hmm. Aristotle, for example. Right. And Aristotle was probably the, considered the authority <laughs> at the time yeah. uh, you know, because of his naturalistic views. And, and I don't think there's anything really wrong with that. It's just that nature is something we can discern because of God-given abilities to see. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're encouraged to see things. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. And that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm following Jesus' command. <laughs> and we, I'll just to let the listeners know, you identify birds by their calls and their, their songs, yeah, yeah, I think by their sounds. <laughs> for us bird watchers, we, we do watch them, but about 80% of identification is sound <laughs> yeah yeah it's phenomenal today's topic is is the english bible reliable for us today good topic what is the uh some of the history of the english bible and how is the english bible how is the bible in its translations but again the english bible and um and i know you're going to be referencing a story uh in from the german bible i'm not going to get into that i'll let you tell it fresh but uh, how has the Bible influenced even our, our language, the development of the English language? Oh, yes. And um, we could take off in a lot of different uh, venue, different avenues here because language is changing rapidly, um, even in our culture and society today. But let's just start there. Um, yeah, you mentioned the history of the English Bible. I, I could start there if you like because sure. it's... Uh, it's fascinating. I'd have to, I think we should just go back to the original languages to start with. The Torah and the books of the Old Testament were predominantly written in Hebrew with some Aramaic, which is also a Semitic language, as you know. Um, so if you're, if you're Hebrew strong and you've got some Aramaic, you should be able to get through and be able to read the Old Testament. Most of us can't do that, including me. 
but I have I have friends who are pretty strong Hebrew scholars, and they work on their own translations, and I I applaud that, but I would not undertake that. Uh, the New Testament is entirely Greek, mm-hmm. with references to some Aramaic words, because Jesus apparently did much of his teaching, if not all of it, in local yeah. kind of street Aramaic, Aramaic, which is a Semitic tongue. Yeah, that would that would have been the uh, the lingo of his day, yeah. of his area where he lived. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, many people were multilingual at the time, mm-hmm. which is one reason Herod, I mean uh, Pilate, nailed a notice on the cross that's in in Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The son of this is uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Yeah. Um, so you've got multiple languages, and some people could speak across those lines in the Old Testament, New Testament era. Right. What would you think, uh, Fred? If I I remember being in in Bible college and reading some of the materials, the use of the different languages that Pilate used in Greek, or well, let's say he wrote it in Hebrew, the religious language, right? Making this kind of a, a, a this kind of a reference, um, which many Jews actually no longer had a grasp of Hebrew. Yeah, the religious language. Then then Greek, the language, the common language, the language of commerce and business. They, and then, basically because of Alexander the Great's conquests yeah, in the 3rd century yeah. B.C. And then Latin, the mm-hmm. Roman from the Romans, that was the language of power, prestige, right. and influence. He wrote it in three languages. Yes. Jesus applies to all three of those things. He's the king of all of them. <laughs> yes, that's right. He's the that's king right. of the Jews is the king of the Hebrew, the king of the Greek, and the king of the Roman. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, keep going here. This is going to be good. Well, I, I mentioned these original languages because if you want an English Bible, you have to translate it from something. And the first English Bible that became commonly known was that of uh, John Wycliffe. And uh, Wycliffe uh, lived in the 14th century, I mean the, the 1300s. So this is pretty early. It's about 100 years before a printing press was available. Okay. So he's writing, uh, I mean, there's some block printing and things like that, but basically he's working from a Latin translation. So you've, actually, an earlier translation was that done by St. Jerome in the 4th century, mm-hmm. quite a while before. And he was, the Pope gave him a commission to translate the Gospels and then finally the New Testament. Then he finally went to work on the Old Testament, started with Psalms, <laughs> translating from the original Greek and Hebrew into Latin. Now, Latin was the everyday language of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. It's the vulgar language, the language of the people, the yeah. everyday tongue. Yeah. Nothing too classical, not like Greek. So, in other words, it's, it's, it's called the Vulgate Bible, uh-huh. and that became the official Bible of the of the medieval yeah. Roman Catholic Church. So the the Vulgate, we use the word vulgar today. It, it did not have the no, meaning then the same as meaning. it does no, now. Totally no, different meaning. No. <laughs> the common language, common, the language crude, spoke. everyday. Yeah. Now Latin is considered, you know, a polished classical tongue mm-hmm. <laughs> for right. scholars. But at the time, it was like this is everyday. Yeah, that's what everybody spoke. That's what everybody spoke. Yeah. So that's what. He translated it into, and from that, Wycliffe and his followers, who became, later became known as the Lollards, wrote the Bible, translated it into Middle English, 
If we sat down and started reading it now, we'd have a hard time getting through it. Right. My brother can read it, but not me. Wow. <laughs> Middle English is pretty close to the more Germanic medieval English tongue, Saxon mm-hmm. English. Anyway, um, they didn't use the original languages. Wycliffe didn't. In oh. fact, a lot of it he didn't translate, but others who helped him, we're not sure how much of it he did. But um, uh, that translation persisted because it was something, they did start printing it out uh-huh. at one point. In fact, King Richard III, the famous king of Shakespeare's play, who was killed in the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, right. he had a copy of Wycliffe's New Testament. <laughs> mm. And yeah. so we thought, well, maybe he's a lowlord. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> but he collected books. Yeah. And so it was pretty cool to have an Eng- English say, language Say it Bible. again, the lowlord is... Lowlords are the followers of John Wycliffe. Right. Yes. So that's our first English translation. Uh, then Gutenberg invented the printing press for Europeans. The idea of using a printing press is much older. Chinese and Koreans and others had it, but mm-hmm. with movable types. That was in 1436. After that, uh, one of our heroes, William Tyndall, <laughs> mm-hmm. who's actually, uh, actually Wycliffe is sometimes called the morning star of the Reformation because he, he right. wants to get the language right. of the common people, uh, wants the Bible written so they could read it, yeah, which is fantastic. And yeah. it was very popular. But later he was considered a heretic. They dug right. his bones up and burned them at the stake, which probably didn't do him too much harm. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, William Tyndall was martyred. Uh-huh. He was killed by strangulation and then burning in Europe um, because of his work. He worked from the original Hebrew and Greek and wrote a better translation. Mm-hmm. In fact, his translation was actually printed because Tyndall comes after the invention of the printing press. But the authorities did not condone or allow him to do that. Right. So they set out to burn all those copies. We have some left. So when we're saying authorities, are we talking about the authorities in, in, in England? What is it England? Right. Yeah. yeah. Just we're br- talking just about the church. The church. The Catholic yeah. church, which did not have the kind of political power where, where they would put someone to death. In fact... Um, for example, the Spanish Inquisition was at the behest of the church to root out heresy uh-huh. in Spain and elsewhere, the Netherlands. However, um, it wasn't the church practicing it. The, the, the secular authority did so at the behest of the church. Okay. So if, if um, you have secular authority putting people to the stake and burning them because the church condemns them as a heretic... Hmm. It's like, okay, you're a heretic, so it's open season on you. <laughs> right. That right. kind of a thing. Right. So that's what happened to Tyndall, unfortunately. But he was a fantastic scholar. He was a brave Christian man who felt that everybody should have a copy of the Bible they could read in their own language. Right. And that language being English. For him, it was English. For him, it was English. Yes. Yeah. There were some... German scholars who were trying to produce copies of the Bible in German at the time. This is before Martin Luther. Right. But those guys uh, were working from 
like Wycliffe had done, were working from the Vulgate. <laughs> Where Tyndall was trying to work from the original the, languages. The Latin Bible, the Vulgate. Right? Yeah. Now, I, I, I've just got to ask this question. Um, when I, I read on the biography on Luther that when he translated it, we, and I know we don't want to get too far off into the, the German languages, but when he translated the Bible into German, he actually didn't create the German language, but he almost that created the German language for the common the German people. Would you uh, recognize that kind of observation or agree with it? Yes, yes. Yeah, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, more on that a little bit later. Sure. But, yeah, we'll come back. Yes, to that. we'll come back to that. Yeah, because it is fascinating. The same thing happened with English Bibles. Okay, uh, this is awesome because we today take for granted our Bible. We think it was just something because we can get a Bible anyway and download it on your phone. And maybe we don't really appreciate the impact that the Bible has had on oh, all of the Western civilization. It certainly has. Yeah. Let's, let's keep going. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I cut you off on the German thing, but we're back to. Uh, okay. Well, Tyndale. that's all right. That's all right. Um, so, so Tyndall's work. Uh, goes kind of hand in glove with, with what Luther was seeking to do. Uh, Luther felt that the common people of Germany should be able to have a Bible in their hands they could read. That's not Latin. And, and part of the problem was that, that um, the Latin Vulgate, uh, Jerome's translation, Jerome himself knew that it was limited, that there were some problems. One problem was his own translation work. He was skilled he was a great scholar but he was not he was not uh the final authority on on latin and or hebrew and mm -hmm. and greek uh he did a pretty good job but there's place many places where we would take issue with how he translated some of the language right. there's that also the fact that he was working from a rather poor bundle of manuscripts he didn't have uh the advantage of more modern scholarship, and the discovery of older manuscripts, which actually help clarify many passages, mm -hmm. uh, so that, um, well, uh, for some people that's, that's, that's a critical point. They think, oh, well, the Bible is not reliable because there's so many right. different versions out there. Well, yeah. no, there aren't, really. Right. Uh, any minor differences in the texts do not have do not affect major doctrines or or any of the critical truths of the Bible. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but Luther was aware of the shortcomings and some of the weaknesses within the Latin Vulgate. So he actually wanted to improve on it. Okay. So rather than working as some of the earlier translators did from Latin to the mm -hmm. <laughs> language of the common people. Whether it be German or Middle English, for Martin Luther, now that we're talking German, yes, yeah, and for for Luther, he he wanted to use a um, kind of refined High German, the Saxon German of of his region, uh -huh. Hochdeutsch we call it, and so he when he wrote his when he translated the Bible, uh, he. He actually helped refine the German language in the process. So you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there did have an impact. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll tell you the story now of this guy. Yeah, yeah. My wife and I were up in Canada. We went to Harrison Hot Springs, and I was sitting in the pool soaking. And nearby, I heard two gentlemen talking, and they were speaking in German. 
well, I've, I had German in high school. I had several years of German, and so I, I always enjoyed practicing it whenever I could. Mm-hmm. So one of them got up and left. I turned to the remaining fellow, and I said, Bitte entschuldigen Sie mir, aber sind Sie nicht Deutsch? Aren't you German? Yeah. Und Ihnen? Nein. But I, I told him, but I've, but I've studied German. Right. And and he asked me how I use my German. I said, well, uh, I, I told him I, I love Luther's translation, Übersetzung, because the German word, of the Old and the New Testaments. He lit up and he said, die Bibel, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, the Bible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Bible. Uh, it was interesting because he was from Bavaria. He was from southern Germany, from a part that was predominantly Catholic. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, they might not appreciate Luther's work, Luther's translation, in a Catholic region of Germany. But he was delighted with it because the German Bible ended up in people's homes and in their churches, mm-hmm. and it helped standardize and, and affirm a unified, uniform version of the German language. So today, if you were living in Germany and you listened to a TV newscast or something, it's going to be in Hochdeutsch, the high German. And it'll be the kind of German that was pretty much set as a standard by that Bible. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened in England with the translation of the Bible by the scholars of the King James Version in 1610. Mm-hmm. They uh, were using a formal legitimately standardized form of the English language, which then became rather formal because actually it became rather established as the German, as the English tongue. What's interesting is that the King James Version in all history is the English book that has sold more copies. It's been more widely published than anything else Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the English language. So it's had a huge impact. Yeah. And when we say standard uh, language, it was the dominant dialect. It was this people were speaking that yes. Elizabethan English. Is that would that be the, the name of the? Was that just yes? Kind it's of a, a kind of post-Elizabethan. Yeah, it's. Yeah. But yeah, it's. Uh, uh, it's interesting that it became so standard that even texts and passages became familiar to people. For example, there was a. British unit that was cut off by the Germans in World War II. And their communications, their their commanding officer was communicating with London, and they're trying to work out a way to break through and rescue these guys. And they were about to be surrounded and captured. And he wrote back, and his last message was, um, yes, we hope that we can be rescued. That he just finished it by saying, and if not. Three words which come out of the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Yeah. They say, well, the Lord can deliver us, and if not. Yeah. Well, we're willing to sacrifice our lives for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Those three words were understood back in headquarters as coming from the context of the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. If a modern military commander sent those three words <laughs> today, they would not know. And there's lots of examples of that, mm-hmm. where people have a pretty clear knowledge of 
scriptural language from the King James Version. When I was a new Christian, I became a follower of Christ. Uh, I prayed to receive him as a 15-year-old. And so starting out in high school, I started memorizing Bible verses. And what I memorized was the King James Version because that's what I was familiar with. It was still kind of a standard mm-hmm. Bible that the English-speaking world was using at that time. So yep. mm-hmm. that wasn't terribly long ago. So. No, no. <laughs> it, uh, I think there are still people that would enjoy reading it from just the poetic nature. Oh, yes, and, yes. Yeah. It's, it's actually easier to memorize. It's, it's lyrical. There's, there's, for example, there's uh, ambic pentameter in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the verse from Isaiah, uh, listen to the meter. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us uh, all. Yeah, you hear There's it. a meter. Uh-huh. There's iams there, iambic meter. So there's poetic beauty to the language. Yeah. That's one reason it's persisted. Yeah. So if you're out there wanting to learn scripture, use the King James. Well, yes. <laughs> now, does it translate easily to the modern setting? And then everyone's going to understand the these and thous. And the... Yeah. Yeah. We can get lost with that a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, um, and that's one of the things about English translations. There's a freedom to try to make it readable and easily memorized. Mm -hmm. So some translations are more readable than others. I actually have a pet peeve against English translations where they try to be more accurate by making it more word for word. The problem there is that the context and semantics of the original language might be conveying an idea that gets lost when you try to go word for word. the fact, the fact is, uh, uh, we have the benefit in the English language of having a Bible. If you go to a Bible store and buy or order online an English Bible, and it's a fairly modern translation, mm-hmm. you know what? You're, you're getting the benefit of really high-level scholarship right, and good knowledge of the original manuscripts, um, which are very strong. And... Um, it's a good translation. Right, yeah. You, you, you mentioned word for word, and um, I'm getting, taking you a little bit uh, different, different direction, but dynamic equiv- equivalence, dynamic uh, oh, yes. equivalent word for word. Can you yes. just briefly touch on that so people kind of uh, know what we're talking about? Sure, sure. Um, sometimes in, in Bible translation work, it's tempting to rely heavily on something called a gloss, where, where you, you take an English, you take a Greek word, say, and you identify it with an English word. Well, it might have the same equivalent equivalence. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you an example. The um, Greek word uh, doxe, mm-hmm. meaning glory. Well, what does that mean? Is, is glory a substantive description of something God has, God's glory? Mm-hmm. Or does it mean we're glorying in God is like a transitive verb to glory in God? Is it a verb? Is it a noun? How is doxe used? And in most English translations, every time doxe shows up, they just put in the word glory. 
well, that most of the time that works because the English word glory is pretty flexible. It, right. It means a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, we just uh, bought a new car. We glory in our new car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the shepherds, the glory of the Lord shone not about them. Uh-huh. Well, um, I don't think Martin Luther had that that kind of freedom. There's no good German word that means the same thing as glory. Uh-huh. So he had to coin terms. For example, the glory of God, uh, he would take doxe, the Greek word, and if it's talking about God's sovereignty, his power, mm-hmm. his lordship, he'd use the word herrlichkeit, which means the lordship. That He stick that word in place of glory. Uh-huh. But the same word, the Greek word doxe shows up the shepherds were yeah. glory, of the guard, glory of the Lord shone round about them. There he uses the word klarheit, like clarity, like boom, the uh, lights uh, flip yeah. on. Uh-huh. And now they're surrounded by God's glory right. and they're illuminated. Yeah. But um, what else does he use? Uh, he, Helikite, klarheit. Um, he's, he uses about five different words. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorites is in is in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what he does there is he uses the word ruma, which means fame mm-hmm. or good reputation. Right. So what do we lose? We lose God's pat on the back saying, you are my good and faithful servant. You're my son in which whom I will pleased. Well, we lost that. Mm-hmm. It's not that we ever had God's kind of glory. No, but we lost him glorying in us. Mm. So that's the difference. Yeah. Luther had to do that with that word, five different words he used to, to translate it. Yeah. Wow. Um, but in English, we can kind of use the word glory. But there's other words that in English, you can't just use a gloss. You can't just take one word and staple it on top mm-hmm. in your translation every time it shows up. You might warp the meaning a little bit right yeah yeah i think it's important that also the amount of scholarship today because of the um they have so much more material to work with yes they do and and not only just uh scripture uh material like say the the dead sea scrolls and other materials but the secular I'm using the term secular. Hope no one thinks that I'm going to so that's just extra biblical extra biblical texts t- text yeah. that helps them understand the ancient language yes. and how it was used, which is important if you can do translation work. The more you understand about a language, the better you're able to handle it yes. in, in, in a translating. My brother uh, is Dr. Richard Erickson of Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's written books on biblical interpretation. He's taught doctoral level classes mm-hmm. uh, on Greek, New Testament Greek. And um, his doctoral thesis, one of his theses, had to do with semantic fields. That is, fields of meaning where you have related words. Uh, and he, he, he focused on words involving cognition or thinking mm-hmm. and how that, how that uh, affected the process by which someone would come to faith, mm-hmm. actually. Right. But to do his research, he had to dig into other Greek sources from outside the Bible. 
Right. Find out how those words were used. One example is the word logos. Yeah. For example, uh-huh. we, you mentioned that in your. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll we're going to have you we'll keep come back going. To that. We'll come back to, to the word logos okay. in a moment. But go ahead and finish your your thought. Anyway, anyway, this. Yeah, it's not just our scholarships depending upon fragments of scripture, which, by the way, um, uh, are very complete. We. Uh-huh. If, if we want to write the entire New Testament from quotations of New Testament texts by church fathers, we could stitch the whole thing right. together from manuscripts within the first one and a half centuries yeah, after I, the time of Christ. I, I remember reading that. And that is, uh, I, I'm just going to pause there and go back and restate that because people will say that we, everything's a copy and we don't even have the original. Well, we may not have the original letters written by the apostles. Yes, yes. But that does not mean that the copies are inaccurate. And, and certainly, today, we're, we're, modern man is a suspicious person. Oh, of course. We can be critical of everything because we don't like to be um, obligated <laughs> to, to his, historical accuracy. Um, Maybe this, more postmodernism, maybe than modernism, but that gets into a whole different. There's a topic. lot of skeptics, even modern Gnostics, who yeah. who would view the um, early church as being selective in which which writings they include right. in the canon or the list right. of books that should be in the New Testament. Yeah. And there's a prevailing view that um, it's like a telephone game, like the first church fathers or the apostles who wrote letters or gospels for the New Testament. Now, they're copied, and then in the copying, the scribes who copy them say, well, you know, we're going to add this information. <laughs> right, right. You know, as doctrines change, we'll sort of mold the writings to fit right. where the church is now. Uh, no, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. It's the, materi- the, the amount of materials that they have, they can cross-reference so much material. Yes. And they understand so much more we about the We have multiple language. copies and they confirm each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And by comparison, Caesar's Gallic Wars was written about 50 years before Christ. Yeah. The first complete version we have of that is like 12th century. Yeah. That's right. It's about yeah. 1,200 years later. Uh-huh. Uh, it's pretty much true of almost all the writings in the ancient world. How yeah. do we know about Socrates? Well, the writings of Plato. <laughs> yeah. But do we have the original documents? No, we don't. We have copies of copies of copies of copies centuries later. But the, the New Testament documents are layered and confirmed by extra, extra documental resources right. all within the first century. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. It's incredible. This just can reassure us that the God has given us a message, a word, a revelation and he has made sure, even using language and the evolving of language, is sufficient to make sure that revelation is transmitted accurately. Oh, yes. I see God's hand in history, that whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Even the timing of the inventing of the printing press, right. <laughs> actually. Yeah. You, you made a comment about the, all the English uh, people say, oh, there's so many versions of the Bible. And I can remember that would be a common rejection when you try to witness to friends or, or something. So, oh, there's so many. And I'm thinking, one day I looked at this online, and there's, I think as of right now, there's 180 different English variations 
of the Bible. Now, you've used the word versions. Versions. You've used the word variations. Variations. I don't think either should apply if we're talking about translations. Right, yeah, okay. A translation is a careful scholarship trying to relate in modern English exactly what the original intention of the words were. Yeah. Uh, what we don't have for any of this, or any ancient writings, are the original autographs. Mm-hmm. The original autograph is the text on which the apostle or his his uh, scribe would have written right. his words, like a letter from St. Paul to the churches. The original one that was sent, that's the original autograph. Immediately, they would start making copies. Right. Because papyrus and parchment, that doesn't last very long. Yeah. Relatively short shelf life. Mm-hmm. So, And it's not being printed off a printing press. And it's not disseminated by the internet or anything like that. Yeah. It's just you lose the original copy as soon as it starts drying up and falling apart. Yeah. So they relied on copies of copies of copies. So what we have is uh, plenty of resources, all these manuscripts that they've been finding that confirm what the other manuscripts say. Mm-hmm. Here and there, there's a few different words. I've got an example here from a... I can find it in my paperwork here, of uh, let's see where, hmm. well, an example it would be um, uh, from James 2.18. In one version, one translation says, uh, the King James says, Show me thy faith without thy works. Well, modern translations, a lot of them say, in the margin they'll say, some copies read, by thy works. In other words, there's a difference. In modern English translations, simply print, show me your faith without works. So which is correct? Well, uh, without works appears in more of the earlier manuscripts. Is this an earth-shaking verse that affects our whole theology? No. (laughs) It's just a little Mm -hmm. slip of a scribe's pen or something Mm -hmm. that was different. Mm -hmm. But what we have is overwhelming manuscripts from earlier that confirm that we have a reliable version of what the original autographs had said. Right, right. Yeah. You mentioned the, um, the... King James text was known by so many uh, up and even into the well into our modern era. You mentioned an example from World War II, uh, the British commander signal, you know, writing back yes. to headquarters. And if but not, but if not, <laughs> but how how uh, did the English Bible impact uh, just the English language and our development as a people? The Western, the Western uh, civilization. Oh, it's it's um, had a huge impact. I mentioned that statistically, the 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 new King James Bible was the most widely published text of any book in mm-hmm. the English language. Yeah, more copies of it, and that and that means widely distributed. Means it's distributed across class lines. Mm-hmm. It's not just people who are. Uh, university students or scholars right. or not just the rich and famous but everybody yeah. has access to that 
Bible. What is interesting, in, in Uganda, Lugandan, Lugandan is the uh, dominant language. They have many, many dialects. Mm. And they do have a Bible in that language. But many of the Lugandans don't even read their, their own language well enough to read that, the translations. Oh. And one of the pastors was laughing about the translations in Lugandan that some words are so long that they don't even know how to pronounce them when they see them. Oh, my goodness. So they'll, <laughs> they'll be reading, and then they'll break into English and just translate things in English. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of them actually have English Bibles. It was a British colony. Uh, yes, that's, yes. It's all a side point, but it was a British colony, so they do have English. Uh, they do speak right. English. Uh, in Uganda and most of East Africa. So, so, it's a little different. you got you got to listen to yeah, pay attention to what they're saying, but you can do in it. In the past, the language of that particular translation, the King James, has been woven into public life mm-hmm. so that you'll, you'll go back and read speeches by public leaders like Abraham Lincoln's speeches. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of intonations, word choices, usage that come right out of King James English. Mm-hmm. And people would tune into that, and they would hear it, and they. So it kind of carries a rhetorical, <laughs> it is written overtone right. to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to the public public speaking public life. So it, it shaped social thought, political thought. Yes, and was used to, and I'm I'm not saying used to. Maybe it was used to manipulate. Maybe somebody had that kind of motive. But that's not my what my point. My point is, it was used to communicate. Yeah. Thought. Well, the first ideas. the first our our nation was founded by the first colonists who came in the 17th early 17th century to Jamestown and then to Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth Colony. When they came, like when the Puritans came to New England. They brought Bibles with them. Some of them had Tyndall Bibles, actually. Mm-hmm. Some had other English translations from the continent. But predominantly, they were carrying this newer King James Version. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they got the colony established and settlements and communities, one thing they wanted to make sure they had was schools. Mm-hmm. Why did they want schools? They wanted their children to be able to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's the primary right. So public education began so that people would be biblically literate. Uh, that was the original intention of schools yeah. in what later became America, the United States. And uh, the language they were using to read uh-huh. was King James. King James. Basically. Now you, you mentioned, uh, you, you said the new King James that there. You meant the King James as it was a newer translation in the English language. Yes, in the 1600s. I, I didn't mean the new King James. Yeah, there is a new. There is a. Uh, <laughs> I know a, a new King James. We're I not referencing, but that's different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're referencing the King James. It's actually, a newer translation. At out the of, time, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a very new, and that really the whole the whole um, the Holman the whole uh, another English version. You had uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, but I forget now the Tyndale. Yes. And then there was one right before. There was a Geneva. The Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible. Yes. And which, then there was William Holden. Hall, Hall, I forget. Uh, Wycliffe? Uh, no. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm not. There were several translations. So the earlier translations in the continent were actually taking the Latin Vulgate and switching it into English. Yeah. So the translators' abilities would have to deal with how much command they had of the Latin. Okay. Yeah. 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 
Well, we won't have to get off into all the vari- variations of, right. of that. But, uh, and there was numerous, uh, well, numerous. There were several different German uh-huh. translations of parts or much of the Bible before Luther. Uh, Luther's translation is great because he's working from uh, Erasmus's mm-hmm. published Greek New Testament. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty authoritative. It's, it's well, we call it the Textus Receptus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, but we've been able to augment it since then because there were some things that Erasmus didn't have at his disposal right. in writing that. But he published a, a Greek New Testament from which. Luther could translate into German. Mm-hmm. And the King James scholars could translate into English. Yeah. yeah. But they're working okay. from Greek. So the King James, is, we call it the King James because King James was the king who authorized the, yes. the, public, the printing and the, the Bible to be printed and distributed yes. in, in, had, in 16, uh, 1611 or something like that, wasn't it? 1610, yeah, I think. 1610. But, but 1604, they were called up, they, they were commissioned to begin the work. Uh-huh. And there's 50 scholars who were involved in the process. Uh-huh. It's interesting because <laughs> you look at what they did. A lot of what they translated was almost with an update in, in, in English to a little more recent version of English for the early 1600s. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a lot of it's like uh, uh, Tyndall's translation. Oh. In places, it's kind of word for word. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> they borrowed heavily from Tyndall because Tyndall was working with the original languages. Right. Yeah, he had the, he had the, the grasp of the language. Yeah, he was a that. decent scholar, so yeah. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I asked the question, is there a, and I use the word mystical, and I, I do not mean for, for here or listening, mystical being new age or mystical in, in crystals. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean by that? I, I don't mean that. I mean mystical. <laughs> and what is the mystery between God and the Bible? The Bible seems to have a command, an ability to do something. When you read it. Oh, yes. Yes. But the Bible is not God. No. What's the difference, and why does the Bible have that kind of an ability? I guess that, that's what I mean when I say mystical. What is the mystical connection between the God, the author, yeah. and the Word? Yeah. Um, I, my mind... When considering that question, my mind is drawn to mankind, humankind's d- dilemma that we are a fallen race. Um, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, says the New England primer that kids had in school mm-hmm. in the colonial times. Mm-hmm. And the themes of the Bible are actually creation, fall, redemption. And we see those themes throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. So we're created beings, created in God's image, but we fell in sin. And part of that fall means we're confused. We're a people living in darkness. And I love it where Isaiah says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And he's speaking prophetically about the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. And something coming up out of Galilee. <laughs> it's, it's the person of Christ. Now, God's trying to get through to us. Not only are we shrouded in darkness, but I visualize myself 
shrouded in darkness with blinders on, like sides of the yeah. horse's head, and I can't see left or right, and I don't have a good view of reality mm-hmm. because I'm a finite person. So God comes down to our level. I, I like the I love the language of the Apostle John in his gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, he begins in Greek, enarche halagas, in the beginning was the Word. Mm-hmm. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Here's, here's the creation part. Without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So in other words, it's like the Word, lagas, is, is uh, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. When we say word there, uh, we're talking about something a little bit mystical. John's using a word that was also used by Greek philosophers at the time. Right. The word logos means the essence or the source or the divine origin, really, of the whole cosmos, the universe. Mm -hmm. It's referring to something that's beyond our grasp. It's like the the, revolve, the core around which right. the universe revolves. In, in Greek thought. In, in Greek, Greek language, thought, yeah. yes. So let's borrow that idea and let's plug it into the scriptures and see. Now we're talking about the word that became flesh. Mm-hmm. So you've got this person, Jesus, walking the planet. His earthly ministry takes less time than it takes for us to get through high school. But it's around that that the whole essence of history shifts. It's it's the fulcrum point of God's redemption for us. Uh, how do we know that? Because we have the written word. Now, uh, there's another Greek word for word mm-hmm. <laughs> in the New Testament. Rima. Yeah. I was going to ask you just to kind of cover the distinction there. Yeah. Uh, rima means um, it's a word that's most often applied to an oral expression, mm-hmm. something communicated to us. God's words could be called rhema, but the word of God, we usually use the word logos. So there's these two Greek words, but it's still, God. the Bible is God communicating with us. He's trying to get through our darkness, past our blinders. And my experience has been, there's been times where the word of God just becomes like a shaft of light. Uh-huh. that penetrates a darkness I enshroud myself with because of my sinful, limited nature. Uh-huh. I don't have the kind of mind that can rise up to where God is. And that's the basic temptation. We, we want to be as gods, uh-huh. knowing good and evil. Well, <laughs> yeah. we need to be told what to know <laughs> from right. the Scriptures. And, and, and we need to get past our, our misconceptions and the lies we've believed uh-huh. And that's where God's word comes in. Yeah, we need both. We need we need logos. We need to yes. We need to as using using biblical language. We need to bow our stiff necks. Yes, to the yes. word, the logos, and God in His mercy. I'll explain it this way. You tell me if you would would agree with this observation. Sure. Uh, biblical language. We bow our stiff necks to the logos, and in His mercy, He speaks to my heart, and I have a rhema. Of yes. the reality of the logos. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a. Uh, then the communication comes through, <laughs> yeah, like a phone conversation. The lines open, yeah. and we can hear his voice. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes I find myself meditating on scripture, usually 
last time this happened to me, I was sitting by a creek up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And bam, it's like he was there with me. And I was surrounded by his presence, and he was speaking directly to me yeah. from Scripture verses I'd memorized. And that's Rima. That's just came to me. Yeah. But the person speaking to me was Logos, who was God. Yeah. And and it's his presence through yeah. his Son. All things were made by him. Without him, so anything made that was made has been made. But the Word became flesh. Those three words: Word became flesh. flesh. That's the essence of that passage. Yeah. That's the turning point. So it's um there, there would be no word the Bible without the Logos Christ, right. the Word of God. That's right. It, it kind of works both ways. Actually, Ken, I I feel um, I know scripturally, and I know from my own experience that we're dealing with a God who is triune. He is Father. He is Son. And the Son is is uh, pre-existent with mm-hmm. the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's, it's good that I'm leaving you guys. When he told his disciples he was going away. Because then the Father will send the Spirit to you. Right. Wait here, he said, told them in Jerusalem, until the Holy Spirit comes. You'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses. <laughs> Beginning here and then through the whole world. And... Uh, that's um, that's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. It's like that's his plan. Every nation will, every knee will bow. You said bending our stiff necks. In his ninety-five theses that helped launch the Reformation, sure. yeah. Martin Luther's first thesis was, "The life of a Christian is a life of repentance." Mm-hmm. And I I like to use the word brokenness. Mm-hmm. I need to be broken before God, so I'm. Humbling myself, not not putting him mm-hmm. in a position where I'm condemning his actions, but right. rather knowing that I'm the sinner. Yeah, incredible. But I think, in addition to God being triune, I think his revelation is triune. This is where the Bible comes in. Okay. Um, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. All things are made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And then in uh, Romans one twenty, Paul writes um, uh, that um, that even those who have not heard the gospel preached to them are without excuse. They can look at nature. Mm-hmm. And when they see God's creation, they could comprehend his invisible qualities, his majesty, and his power. And they, so it's through creation. When I go bird watching, I look at a beautiful bird perched on a branch, and mm-hmm. and I realize, okay, I can see those colors because God created a clear atmosphere and the light comes through, and then it reflects off those feathers. Uh-huh. And then he created my eyes so the eyes could receive that shaft of light and those Different colors can be arrayed on my iris, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and my brain can perceive it and switch it upside down again. So it's it's like I'm experiencing creation here. That's Thomas Aquinas. We 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 mentioned earlier Thomas Aquinas, and not in the book. It doesn't matter. I had some technical difficulties, but we started with Thomas Aquinas. Right, right. uh, He wrote, uh, and and I'm I'm getting acquainted with him. Uh, oh, 
but he was his which by the way he's one of the leading even today is thought as one of the leading theologians for the church he, right his right. thoughts Everyone has to grapple with his thoughts, what he wrote down. Right. We even call it Thomism. His Thomism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, scholastic. But he said God can be known in nature, but not entirely through nature. Yes. We're subject to human error and misinterpretation of nature. Yes. Yes. So we need the, the revelation. And that goes back to the Bible being the, the Logos revelation, the message of I, God. Uh, he's right. And uh, so we can, when Paul says we can know you mentioned a triune nature of knowing God. That, yeah, triune revelation involves a created word, uh-huh. the written word, God speaking to us through the Bible, mm-hmm. and the living word, the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. So you've got these, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's that shaft of light uh-huh. that through which, well. Right. And, and that created word Nature, yes. In the uh, New England uh, the book, I don't, I don't know if you have it. Maybe, maybe you do. I, at the, uh, the the sermons of New England preachers back in the seventeenth, uh, uh, yeah, seventeenth century right. and early eighteenth century. So now we're talking. The Declaration of Independence has not happened here. No, we're, no, we're no. just we're the colonies uh, doing the colonies are doing the colonies things. These theologians were using these pastors. Many of these pastors themselves were theologians uh, and scholars. Absolutely, uh, to some extent. Jonathan Edwards. They use language like nature, God's nature, uh, and, and this language got, of course, enfolded into Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, and then into the preamble of our Constitution. Um, John Locke used it. That's right. And I'm. This gets totally off topic, but now I'm going to uh, ask you, would that language been gleaned from Thomas Aquinas? Because he seems to be the one that coined that that whole thought, or maybe others were thinking it, but he put it well, yeah, succinctly. Yeah, yeah uh, Schaefer talks about that, um, about how once you introduce nature and grace, that dynamic duo that Eventually, nature will eat up grace, and and eventually we'll arrive to the age of reason, and mm-hmm. Thomas Locke and his thinking. Right. We hold these truths to be self-evident. <laughs> Why are they self-evident? It's part of nature. Right. right. <laughs> all things, all men are created equal. Well, from that you can move. They moved eventually to secular materialism, where modern Western humans arrive at a view that. Uh, Nature is all there is. Right. Grace has disappeared. So uh, everything is material. Uh, matter, time, and energy, the only dimensions that exist, there's no supernatural, nothing beyond nature. Right. Yeah. Uh, once you get to that, then you have to find explanations for where we all come from. Mm-hmm. Well, we, have to, we need theories to explain yeah. origin of life on this planet, the biosphere, and so yeah. that's we turn to neo-Darwinism, you know, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. So we're we're kind of getting a rut if if all we have is nature. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's not what that's not what Thomas Aquinas set out to cause. No. But yeah. but there is a direct descent there. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, I asked you questions. We covered the material and the notes that we pretty well did. I've got to ask my own question to get sure. your, your response to this. Uh, sola Scriptura. Yes. 
the Catholic tradition would be, if I understand, their, I'm, I'm not well versed in their, all their doctrines and, and theology, sola scriptura and the church fathers, the, the authority of the church yes. to interpret yeah. the scripture. That's a good way to say it. The, the principles of the, of the Reformation kicked off by the work of life of Martin Luther, focused on several du- principles. And sola scriptura is kind of there at the head. Mm-hmm. Is sola, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, by faith alone. Sola scriptura, only the scriptures. Uh, when he was called to account for his writings at the Diet of Worms before the emperor, he was challenged. Are these your books? Uh, yeah, looks like it. <laughs> Do you stand by your writings? In other words, because we might find some heresy there, mm-hmm. and you might be in trouble. And he says, well, give me a day to think about it. <laughs> so finally they bring him back, and he says, well, my, my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. Uh-huh. Now, what does that mean? That means that only the Bible is going to be his authority. If his writings contradict are contradicted by rulings of church councils or decrees by the Pope from a position of his papal throne, well, that's too bad for the council and the popes because this is what the Bible says. It's right. sort of like uh, Nietzsche <laughs> was told by one of his students that your theories have are, con- are in conflict with history. He said, umso schlimmer für die Geschichte, which means, that's too bad for history. <laughs> so it's like, same kind of deal. Yeah. Luther says, so your teachings are in conflict with what I wrote based on the <laughs> scriptures. Uh-huh. Well, too bad for your teachings then. Yeah. I, can't, I can't do anything different. Yeah. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. And yet, the Bible does need interpreting, or does it need expounding on? Ah, it yes, does need. Yes. It does need that, uh, why should I go to church? Yes. And um, why should I go and listen to a preacher? Why should I submit to a teacher when I have Sola Scriptura, which is a little bit of a mis, uh, yeah, misuse yeah, of yeah. That, that, that term? I was drawn to... I was raised a Baptist, but I was drawn, after I became a Christian, I was drawn to a particular pietistic form of the Lutheran tradition because of this emphasis on Scripture. I noticed from from the Baptist church I left where the pastor was leaning more towards kind of a social gospel and pretty wide, flexible interpretation of how to not an emphasis on what does the Bible say, not not clearly showing that that's our authority, because mm-hmm. it was a, not a conservative Baptist, <laughs> you understand. Yeah, right. But so I was drawn to this little Lutheran church here in Marysville that um, I went in, and what really struck me was that the main part of the service was a sermon from the Word of God in which the pastor took pains to show this is what the Bible's really saying here, mm-hmm. and here's some other verses that say the same thing. And, mm-hmm. and, and in other words, leaning on the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, right. not on other authorities. Right. This is what I was taught in the seminary. No, this is what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. But what we were encouraged to do in, in that tradition, 
kind of the Reformation tradition or the tradition of Luther, if you will, is that you let Scripture be the best commentary on other Scriptures. That is, you, you're like those, um, uh, the Bereans in the book of Acts, and Paul and Luke says, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and they received the word, for, and then they, they checked the Scriptures to see whether these things were so. That is, they, they went and double-checked. Right. So Luther's theology sometimes is seen to focus on something called the um, priesthood of the believer. So you mentioned, well, why should we go to church? Well, we go to church so that, so that we can fellowship, for one thing. Mm-hmm. We can serve others. We can be encouraged by contact with other Christians. Mm-hmm. And we can disciple others, and we can be discipled by others Mm -hmm. and yes so we can listen to teaching and preaching why would we do that well because maybe somebody will draw be used by the lord to draw something to our attention that we hadn't considered or every time you open the bible you're Mm -hmm. uh you you referenced for me in in our notes uh, an article from uh life way research Uh and i found read a few of the articles there uh, this one, the one you mentioned, was by John Mead and Peter Gurry. No, no, no. The one you mentioned was a different one. It was a. Uh, um, I can't remember the name of the author. Yeah, it was statistics and the reading a survey they did. Yes, on, uh, and they they found numerous. Uh, they referenced some research where they found numerous benefits to people who cracked open their Bibles at least four times a week. Yeah. <laughs> the power of four. Yeah, it was just incredible. Yeah. Now, um, I have some background in statistical research and statistics as an education major uh-huh. at one point. And I get concerned when I see research like that because I think, well, correlation does not always mean causation. Uh-huh. In other words, are these people experiencing freedom from depression and and certain kinds of uh, mm-hmm. destructive po- things in their lives because they're reading their Bibles? Or do they have that freedom and they read their Bibles for the same reason? <laughs> in other words, right, their right. lives have been transformed. And so, uh-huh. so there are people who crack open their Bibles, but still there's a high correlation. Uh-huh. And one way to open your Bible and see is you go to church and the pastor says, open your Bibles to this text, and then the pastor is led to expound on the text, uh-huh. hopefully guided by the Holy Spirit. Right. They don't speak with, we don't say, oh, you're you're in the uh, papal throne up there and you can speak and now we have a new doctrine. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. we'll be like the Bereans. We'll compare what you say with other passages we could read ourselves in the mm-hmm. Bible, which is the whole point of having the Bible written in the language of the people. Mm-hmm. That's what Luther was after. That's what Tyndall was after. Mm-hmm. That's what Wycliffe was after. Uh, let's get the language, the Bible in the language of the people so they can read it themselves. Yeah. Powerful. I, I, one last closing uh, comment from me, then I'll get, I'm going to ask you what is the personally, you did already talk about you were up in the mountain, the river, and oh, yes. but I want to know just personally how the Bible has impacted you. You really have been talking about it throughout the, the session. But Josiah, uh, Josiah was a young king, in the uh, in Chronicles, and the priests found 
They were rummaging through the temple and they found some, some uh, uh, documents, scrolls, scrolls yeah. and they opened them up and they could read them. And they realized, hey, this is important. This is uh, the, the law. Yeah, something we forgot about entirely. <laughs> yeah. So here this nation was trying to, they, you know, they couldn't live for God because they had no written, well, they, I'm saying they, they had no written record readily available to him until these scribes found it, the priests found it, and then they yes. brought it to the king, they read it to the king, and this is but partly what kind of prompted my question about uh, the mystical nature of the word. So they were reading the law, and it sparked sure. a national revival in Judah, not so much in the north, but in Judah. Uh, divided two kingdoms, a lot more there than we can get into right now, but right. but most people probably know there was a, is, Israel, Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. Yeah. Um, and here was uh, the, um, the Josiah probably maybe couldn't read. I don't, I don't know. He's a he, pretty young king. He's yeah. pretty young, <laughs> young king, so maybe he was never schooled in reading. But uh, they sat for hours under the reading of the law. I think that's what I said. The priest would go out and they would read it. Yes. Josiah ordered the reading of the word to the, to the people. Reading of the word. And they would sit for hours and read the, the law to the people. And profound effect. Yes. Uh, we have taken the Word of God through the history of America out of schools. We've pretty well taken it out of the public life. And uh, maybe some making observations to it might say we've done it more to our peril than to anyone's good. Oh, we have. Yeah. Uh, the Word has a, a mystical power because of its ability to transform lives. Yeah. And my own life is transformed basically because of exposure to Scripture. I've jotted down this verse, which is familiar to many of your listeners, I suppose. Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is quick. And the word for word there is logos. The word of God is quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. I'm reading King James Version, by the way. <laughs> and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Mm-hmm. That's been my experience. I crack open the Bible, and sometimes it's like there's a spotlight right on a verse. And the Holy Spirit just sort of takes it. And the sword goes right into dividing joints and marrow and thoughts and intents of the heart. And it pierces darkness and confusion and basically drives me to my knees because I say, okay, Lord, you got through to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I put up shields. I put up blinders. I'm a finite sinner living in a sinful world. I've got unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips, as Isaiah said, and who will save me? And then God takes his word and uses it Mm -hmm. as a sword, a sharp sword. Mm -hmm. And that's good. That's what happened with Josiah's generation. When they dusted off the scrolls, took them out and publicly read them. And by the way, in the ancient world, reading was virtually always done out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if you were by yourself. I think one of the followers, students, 
disciples, if you will, of uh, St. Augustine in the 4th century was surprised when his master was sitting and his head was going back and forth as he had an open scroll in front of him uh-huh. <laughs> or a codex. I'm not sure what she was reading. And he thought, "What is he doing?" <laughs> he was reading quietly. He was silently. reading. He was reading silently. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, Gene and I will do a great deal of our Bible reading out loud. Me too. Yeah. And I would encourage for several reasons. One, it improves your reading. Two, uh, it's fun because there's times when I will give an inflection. And dramatic reading. Yes. And I'm having fun with it. And uh, and I do read quietly when I want to read more, maybe for be very reflective and, and yeah. really maul over these words slowly. But uh, I wouldn't say half, but I would say a great deal of our readings out loud. I love doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Ken, sometimes I'll, I'll just uh, walk through the house with the Bible clutched between my hands and read straight through. Well, one of the shorter epistles, like, Uh say, Ephesians or something, and read the whole thing. Yeah. Just walk back and forth up and down the hallways, clutching at my hands, sounding out the words, like you say, putting some (laughs) inflection into it. Yeah. And actually, the King James is good for that, too. It's it's a very readable text. Yeah. But sometimes I'll do it with one of Luther's translations, or his translation. I'll I'll, uh, read straight through in German. Wow. Because... My German isn't, I'm not totally fluent, but it's good enough I can read it mm-hmm. and get most of it. But a lot of it I understand because I'm also familiar with the English translation. So there I get a dual understanding. Uh-huh. I got just a little bit of Greek, enough Greek to be dangerous, so I could double check some things in the Greek. But the illumination of two languages is like hearing the scriptures in stereo. Wow. Because yeah. I'm, I'm getting it from two different cultural um, conveyances. That wow. Yeah, great, great. Powerful. I enjoyed the whole thing. Thank you for coming on. You bet. Thank you, Ken. Yeah.